Dr. Howe and I are really glad to be here. We have a, a cover your bases uh, um, here because Dr. Howe is an internist and I as a dermatologist am an externist. And so uh, um, we want to share um, the practical how-to of testimony. Is, uh, my dermatology practice, next to my dermatology practice where I lease a suite, is an aesthetics practice. And these are all aestheticians, and uh, they provide products and services for skin beauty and health. The aestheticians feature a number of products from a number of different skin care creams, and each company wants the aestheticians to use their product because if the aesthetician uses it, um, they sell it much more effectively. So they provide the staff and my staff with samples. And the reason? Testimonials. As long as there has been history, testimony has been the most effective way to sell. Um, Eve started the first testimony and she sold Adam a forbidden fruit. Um, in my office, we have a literature rack and we have various religious and health pamphlets, but um, I share the uh, space with the aestheticians, and uh, in the literature rack are also skin beauty products that the aestheticians provide. The companies give the advertising, and uh, they also have even big posters, because a picture is a type of testimony. And they have found that literature doesn't sell the product. It creates curiosity, it catches attention, but it is testimony that sells product. Tuesday night, the estheticians had a brand new product and they had an open house. And uh, I happened to be there in attendance and one of the people in the audience said to the uh, person who was demonstrating, do you have any testimonials? I thought, what an interesting introduction for in two days I'm going to be talking about testimonies. And of course the esthetician staff had testimonies. And as the staff gives their testimony and as the people use the product and give their testimony, the esthetician's practice grows. God has been trying to illustrate something to me. Estheticians focus on external beauty. But God is a spiritual esthetician who tries to get beauty from the inside out. He has character aesthetics products and services. And it is not our literature in our waiting room uh, racks that sell the product. It is our testimony to the patients. If you examine websites advertising goods or service, you'll see links to testimonials. And one company told me they have been tracking differences between medical offices that do well selling their product, the aesthetics offices, and those that don't. And they found the difference was the physician and staff that had an effective testimony was the staff and practice that sold product 
and those that merely had advertisements did not. Testimonies not only influence our patients, testimonies influence us more than we realize. I was in the market for a razor. And I was downtown Philadelphia at the time, and they have in downtown Philadelphia, did then anyway, they had a store that did nothing but sell razors, electric razors. And so I looked over the walls after, I mean, there were just stacks of different kinds, different brands, different prices, and I didn't know how to begin. So you know what I did? I went to the store owner and I asked a simple question. Of the razors here, and he could have any of them, which one do you use? And guess what razor I walked out of the store with? The cheapest one he had because that was the one he used. <laughs> the method of testimony is not only effective in selling medical products and services, done creatively and skillfully, it is the single most important way that we as physicians, dentists, and other health providers can change attitudes and even practices and habits of our patients. The health and gospel literature we place in the waiting room will not substitute for our testimony. Our testimony is the important key that gives Seventh-day Adventist physicians and dentists a unique opportunity to influence our patients' lifelong health and beliefs. 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which we have looked upon, read it with me, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifest, and we have seen it, and bear witness, that is testimony, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. The disciples could give their testimony because they were witnesses. Only one who has experienced something can give a testimony about the experience. Testimony is not having a memorized can canvas that you've carefully crafted and done research about which words are the best. Testimony is that spontaneous report that you can give of what you have seen and felt and handled. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard, Acts 4.20. I did a lot of medical legal work uh, in physical medicine. And so some weeks I would have testimony eight, nine times, um, several, a couple times each evening, going over various uh, uh, injured patients, and mostly work comp. And the only question that the lawyers were interested in was, what had I seen regarding that patient? And if I began to express some other opinions, there would be an objection, hearsay, hearsay. If we are going to be witnesses and give testimony, we must have witnessed something. If we haven't seen it, we can't give testimony about it. It's hearsay. And that was the basis of the disciples' testimony. I was born into an Adventist minister's family home. 
And I heard many, many seminars on how to give a testimony. And most of them tried to help uh, prepare a canned and scripted presentation. It wasn't testimony. It was hearsay. Christ gave a seminar on having a powerful test of testimony to a new convert. His instruction was so thorough, complete, and effective, but so short, it's never been equaled. We've all seen that he didn't, we've all had days, I should say, that didn't seem to end when the pressure of patients and emergencies keep us from having time to even eat. And this was Jesus' very packed day. Crowds of sick had been healed, then stayed to hear him tell his first parables. He had scarcely paused for food, and by the day's end, he was hungry and exhausted, and decided to take a fishing boat and sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where there was no cell phone reception, no texting, no email, and he could get a needed break. But but Christ could never get off call. His sleep was interrupted by an emergency that required his attention. He calmed the storm and finally arrived at Gadara, but even here there was no rest. Early in the morning as the boat docked, Christ was confronted by a psychiatric emergency, a man whose brain was controlled by demons. And Christ sent the legion of devils from the man into the nearby swine who immediately panicked, rushed into the Sea of Galilee, and drowned. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Luke 8.35, Dr. Luke says, Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. The swine keepers were mercifully spared, but instead of gratitude, they begged Jesus to leave. Not everyone wanted Jesus to leave, however. When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. This man had just been delivered from demons that tortured him, forced him to cut himself, and his cries and blood-curdling screams had filled the air, terrorizing those who heard. But he was delivered, and for the first time in years, free. But he would be living with neighbors that had been unable to drive the demons from his life, and yet they were wanting to drive Jesus from their lives. He didn't want to be with these Christless neighbors in this Christless region. Would you? However, Jesus, it said, did not permit him to stay with him. In one sentence, Jesus gave a complete seminar on how to give a testimony. Christ's approach is not some slick Madison Avenue marketing approach. There's no gimmicks. He said, go home to your friends. Jesus' first two words of instruction were to go home. Our work, our first work, is in our home. Our testimony must begin here. Demons lead us from home duties and responsibilities, but Jesus and conversion bring us back home. Christ in the life doesn't take us away from family. It restores family. It is in our home. Among friends, we learn to confess Christ. The testimony that is effective with patients and will change their life is learned by practice at home in our family and friends. And then when we have 
a testimony to friends and family, God may call us to an expanded testimony as he did Abraham, Joseph, Daniel, or Paul. But our testimony must begin at home. This man had left his home. He was living an immoral life with another man, appropriately enough in the cemetery. Warrants for his arrest were out. He had been incarcerated and was an escaped convict. To go home in this circumstance must have appeared like a difficult, even a dangerous task. The people he had stolen from must be contacted. The judge who had sentenced him must be located. But whatever the consequences, he must go home. Undoubtedly, what must have seemed to this man as the end of his life was really to prove its true beginning. What may have seen the end of any testimony potential was really the door that was to open to greater testimony opportunity. We can never have a future in testimony unless we have cleared up our past. 1 Timothy 1.18, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, that thou mayest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. In court, the opposing testimony, the opposing attorney, will attempt to impeach the credibility of the person giving the testimony. If we want to win souls now or ever, we must have a clear conscience. We must go home. Satan wants to use the blackmail of knowledge of our prior sins to keep us from testifying today. And then when we go home, we regard ourselves as missionaries, not among the heathen, but among our fellow workers. This was written to workers in an Adventist institution. Often we forget our first mission field, our training mission field. The best testimony is not the testimony we say, it's the testimony they see. Many are happy to give their testimony going overseas, going on medical mission trips, but God wants us to be medical evangelists at home and abroad. Notice how it works. John the Baptist directed two of his disciples to Christ. Then one of these, Andrews, found his brother and called him to the Savior. Philip was then called and he went in search of Nathanael. These examples, Desire of Ages 141, should teach us the importance of personal effort of making direct appeals to our kindred, friends, and neighbors. There are those who for a lifetime have professed to be acquainted with Christ, yet who have never made a personal effort to bring even one soul to the Savior. Many have gone down to ruin who might have been saved if their neighbors, common men and women, had put forth personal effort for them. Many are waiting to be personally addressed. In the very family, the neighborhood, the town where we live, there is work for us to do as missionaries for Christ. I had the uh, wonderful advantage of having a godly father, and my wife had the wonderful advantage of having a godly father. And just a couple months ago, my wife's father, who was 94, and he and his, uh, uh, and my mother-in-law uh, have been living with us, he passed away. And so the family came in, and among those who'd that came to visit for the funeral was 
one of our adopted nephews is 15 years old and come, came in from California. And I had an opportunity to get him a, quietly aside in a bedroom and share with him the decision Grandpa had made at this uh, grandson's, um, great-grandson's age and the difference it had made in his life. And then I shared with him the decision I had made at age 15 and the dis difference it had made in my life. And I was very frightened, I have to admit, but I asked him a question. I looked him right in the eye, asked him a question. Have you ever made that decision that can make such a difference in your life? And he said, uh, no. I asked him if he'd like to make that same life-changing, life-building decision that so changed my life and changed Grandpa's. And he was thoughtful. And two months ago, he said, yes, I'd like to. And he made that decision, prayed with me. Um, after explaining who we are to give our testimony, Je Jesus gave instruction on how to give a testimony to them. Go, he said, to your friends and tell them. Tell them what great things you have done for the Lord and how you have... No, did I read it wrong? Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has compassion on you. The healed demoniac could tell how Christ had changed his life completely. Before we can give a testimony, we have to have a testimony to give. If Jesus hasn't changed my life completely, I have no testimony. The rescued demoniac could tell his friends what great things the Lord had done for him, and they could see it. It had compassion. Steps to Christ, 115. If you're Christ followers, he sends in you an email to the family, the village, the street where you live. Sends a letter, a text message. But it starts with what word? If. What an important word. If I'm a disciple, following Christ, following his example, surrendered fully to him, then he can send me as a, with a message for my wife, a message for every patient that comes into my office. And what is the message? Jesus dwelling in you desires to speak to the hearts of those who are not acquainted with him. Recently, I had a patient who had just been diagnosed with throat cancer and had a surgery, and they were actually waiting for a device so he could speak again. He came in for a skin problem, but he couldn't speak. Jesus, who dwells in me, has no other voice box but mine. And if I don't give him my voice box, he has no voice box. He wants me to give it to him. Jesus dwelling in me desires to speak to the hearts of those who are not acquainted with him. Perhaps they do not read the Bible or do not hear the voice that speaks to them in its pages. They do not see the love of God through his works. But if I am a true representative of Jesus, it may be that through me they will be led to understand what does it say next? Something of his goodness, and be one to love and serve him. Something of his goodness. The purpose of my testimony is to lead my family and my friends to understand something of God's goodness. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord, 
Wonderful Savior to me, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock where rivers of pleasure I see. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, he taketh my burdens away. He holdeth me up and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day. With numberless blessings, each moment he crowns and filled with his fullness divine, I sing in my rapture, O glory to God, say it with me, for such a redeemer is mine. It may be that through you, others will be led to understand something of God's goodness and be one to love and serve him. The man went away into the region near the ten cities known as Decapolis and began telling everyone how much Jesus had done for him. Everyone who heard what had happened was amazed. His testimony had impact, and so can ours. One of the hardest positions I found to fill in a busy office is the front desk. The front desk person has to multitask, and if there's a busy day, Patients are there demanding immediate attention, someone going out, someone coming in, um, greeting all with a smile, somebody impatient that they're waiting, answering the phone, not as an interruption, but with a smile. And God is calling physicians, dentists, and health providers to be his receptionists with a smile for him. Our confession of his faithfulness is heaven's chosen agency for revealing Christ to the world. It's not a complicated formula. We tell what great things God has done. We are to acknowledge his grace as made known through the holy men of old. But this is hearsay. That which will be most effective, read it with me, is the testimony of our own experience. And this is not most important what we say, but it's who we are. Paul carried with him through his life on earth the very atmosphere of heaven. All who associated with him felt the influence of his connection with Christ and companionship with angels. Here lies the power of truth. Have you ever wondered what the New Testament power of the gospel was talking about? This is it. This is the powerful testimony I want. Godly example. I want this testimony every day in my, in my family, with my wife, my children, my friends. And I want this testimony in my office, with my staff, and with my patients. The unstudied, unconscious influence of a holy life is the most convincing sermon that can be given in favor of Christianity. When Christ is thus revealed in our speech, it will have power in winning souls to him. That's the testimony we can give. Thank you, Phil. Testimony. Well, I think I'm supposed to be talking about testimony and what it has to do with uh, changing patient behavior. Being an internist, I'm uh, going to talk to you a little more about clinical change. How do you get uh, your patients to change? I've got a testimony for you. I'm lousy at changing patient behavior. How about you? Well, you know, in the medical literature in the last six months, I've been looking at uh, patient change. It's, it's through the literature incredibly. 
You, you read it in every journal you pick up, how important it is. We have a health care crisis. Does anybody recognize that? A major crisis. Right now, there are 26 million diabetics in this country, and their cost of care is $10,000 more per patient than the average patient. What's that kind of money to you? I think that's $260 billion. It's expected to triple by the year 2050, and remember, 95% or better of those diabetics are that way because they couldn't change their behavior. In an editorial in uh, October 2012, the issue of Mayo Clinic proceedings, I think it sums up the literature on this topic about as well as any I've read, and it reads as follows. It is widely accepted that if people follow the basic principles of cardiovascular disease prevention, their risk for cardiovascular death can be reduced by 75%. Ornish would say 99%, and so would Esselstein, but we'll give them 75%. Remember, we spend about $450 billion on cardiovascular disease alone in this country. However, the currently available data are less instructive in identifying how to change human behavior in an effective and lasting ways as a means to improve outcomes trouble, isn't it? We know that we have a long way to go when interventions for smoking cessation that have no more than a 20% quitting rate are called successful. And when the overwhelming majority of people with obesity who lose weight will regain all of the weight lost in less than a year. You're doing good, right? It is generally accepted that healthcare workers are poor at getting people to change their behavior, and physicians are particularly lousy. You dentists, I think, are a little better than we are. I, I like what one dentist told me. You only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. <laughs> That's fairly motivational. I've been flossing ever since I heard that. You know, here's, here's how good we are. With smoking cessation, 4 to 8% of the people you tell to quit will. If you give out an exercise prescription, 10 to 20% of the people will follow it. If you give weight loss advice, 2 to 4% of the people will be successful in long-term weight loss. I think that's a failing grade. Anybody want to try to go through medical school and pass when uh, you're wrong 90 to 95 to 98% of the time? I don't think so. I don't think so. The key to solving the healthcare crisis is simple. Learn to change patient behavior. 70% or more of the healthcare dollar in this country and around the world is currently spent on preventable diseases. That is preventable if people would just change. But don't despair. Ours is not the first generation to have trouble doing what we know we should do. 
Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul said, the good that I would, that I do not, the evil that I would not, that do I. The only power strong enough to deliver Paul from being the wretched man that he was, or as he put it, deliver him from the body of this death, was the power of the gospel. More research will not, as suggested in Mayo Clinic proceedings, help us or our patients to change our behavior for the better. We don't need more, educa- uh, more research. Health education, no matter how true the information, just like the law of God, is powerless to change behavior. And that's why it's so critical that you not get mistaken and mixed up and think that when you're doing health education, you're doing medical missionary work. You're not. You are not doing medical missionary work when you do health education. Ellen White said, men and women cannot violate natural law by indulging depraved appetite and lustful passions without violating the law of God. Natural law, that is the laws that govern our body, she equates with the law of God. Now, people often wonder how medical missionary work and the gospel ministry fit together, and this is the way they do. Medical missionary work is presenting the gospel as a means to obeying natural law. Okay? That's medical missionary work. And the gospel ministry is simply presenting the gospel as a means of obeying the moral law. You can't obey either without power. And that doesn't come from within your heart or mine. The very essence of the gospel, whether it's physical or spiritual, is Restoration, that's from Desire of Ages, page 824. The very essence of the gospel is restoration. Christ, the great physician, who is our example, went through towns, and there were no more sick ones in the towns when he left. Now, I've been going through the town that I live in for 23 years, and there's still as many sick people there as when I started. Is it any different in your town? And the worst of it is most of those have heard the health education message. I've been giving it for 23 years on the TV and in lecture after lecture because I confused medical missionary work and health education. I was presenting the law without the power to change. Are you doing that? I hope not. Well, you know, um, I'm not the only medical missionary so-called that's done that. In Mark 9, there's a very familiar story about nine disciples who tried to engage in the healing ministry without power. They were uh, trying to ascertain uh, how to do this, uh, and now it's our time to try to ascertain why they were powerless and to try to learn lessons from their failures. Uh, Mark 9, 17 and 18 says as follows, And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. 
and I spake to thy disciples, and they could not cast him out. What was the setting? Well, in every case, you can read this in, in Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or uh, Luke 9. In every one of those cases, the writer says, and after six days, or Luke says, and after eight days. And then you go back and you say, after, well, what was going on? Well, what was going on is this, is Jesus had been talking to his disciples about his soon coming death and humiliation and the necessity of them following him in self-denial and taking up their cross and the real possibility of them losing their own lives and uh, this didn't fit in with uh, their discussions of who would be the greatest. It didn't uh, mesh at all. And as a result, um, the disciples for the week, the six days or eight days before, had been in uh, modern parlance. They had been in a blue funk. They, uh, you know, they said, well, we joined this guy and, and we thought we were going to get somewhere and and we are going to be in the kingdom and, you know, sit one on the other side. And what's this about death? And, and I don't like it. And uh, so after six days, Jesus said to his disciples, some of you aren't going to die before you uh, see the kingdom coming in its power. And that raised their hopes a little bit, but not much. And then six days later, he took three of them up the hill and the nine that were left at the bottom were all happy about not having to climb the hill, right? <laughs> no, they were jealous. They had been in a bad mood for a, a week, and now they're jealous. How come he took them up there? Picture it. You're one of the nine at the bottom. For the last week, you've been wondering, what's in it for me? And now you're left behind. What kind of a night are you going to have? Good sleep, right? No, they were fussing and fuming. It was uh, a hard ground. They were jealous. It was as if Medicare had just announced a big cut in reimbursement. <laughs> and they had just been served papers on a lawsuit. Hard to keep uh, going, keep your focus some days, isn't it? I'm going to read something from Medical Ministry, page 131. All heaven is looking on with intense interest to see what stamp medical missionary work will assume under the supervision of human beings. Will men make merchandise of God's ordained plan for reaching the dark parts of the earth with a manifestation of his benevolence? Were the disciples making merchandise, trying to benefit? You bet they were. Where had they gone wrong, those disciples? Why were they unable to heal the boy that day? The quote in medical ministry goes on. We are not to cover mercy with selfishness and then call it medical missionary work. Isn't that what the disciples were doing? How about you and me? I talked to a physician a few weeks ago about her practice, and she started telling me about all the obese people she was seeing and how they couldn't change their lives 
and then went on to tell me how she wasn't making as much money as she had and how the uh, administrators of the hospital were making more than ever. Is it any wonder that people weren't changing in her practice? Ministry of Healing, page 19, speaking of Christ, it says, As he passed through towns and cities, he was like a vital current diffusing life and joy. Can you picture that? What would it be like as if you walked through your town and they said, there goes Phil. Let's catch that current. Um, I want some joy in my life. Let's, let's catch that current. You're not going to have that joy and that current of life if you're merchandising medical missionary work. Would you change lives as a medical or dental or health professional? I, I would recommend you read three chapters, and I'm going to quote for some, from some of these. Medical, uh, sorry, Ministry of Healing, Chapter 9, Teaching and Healing. Read it and read it. Education, Chapter 8, Teacher Sent from God. Read it and read it again. And lastly, Desire of Ages, Chapter 86, Go Teach All Nations. And uh, so here's a quote. It was not only on the cross that Christ sacrificed himself for humanity. As he went about doing good, every day's experience was an outpouring of his life. <clears throat> Would you change patient behavior? You better live like that. Somehow we in the medical profession must move away from merchandising medical work. We must learn to deny self and take up our cross and follow Jesus. If we don't, then in trying to save our lives and livelihoods, we'll lose them. And that's pretty close around the corner. How do we change patient behavior and bring healing to our patients? Number one, and this is from Ministry of Healing, page 156. Offer them something better. It is of little use to try to reform others by attacking what we may regard as wrong habits. We must offer men something better than they possess. They already know they're overweight. You don't have to tell them. They've got scales of their own that they take their shoes off just so that they can weigh themselves and so they won't be 200 pounds overweight. They'll only be 199 and a half. You know, it happens every day in my office. The bigger they are, the faster they take their shoes off to be weighed. They already know they're overweight. We must offer them something better than they possess. Tell them of the freedom they're enslaved. Tell them of the freedom and rest to be found in the Savior. Would you change their lives? Offer them something better. Two, vision hope for them. In every human being, he, that is Jesus, he discerned infinite possibilities. He saw men as they might be, transfigured by his grace. Looking upon them with hope, he inspired hope, 
meeting them with confidence. He inspired trust in his presence. Souls despised and fallen realized they were still men. Education, page 80. You ought to memorize that whole page. If you want to change lives, you better have hope and inspire your patients with hope. I know you can change. I know you can do it because I know the person that has the power to change your life. Three, stay connected <coughs> to the source of power. That's what happened to the disciples. They disconnected themselves from the source of power because they were grumbling and, you know, they were merchandising Christ and the power. That, remember, the disciples had power given to them to cast out demons. You can read it in Mark 6, three chapters before. Christ gave them power to cast out demons, but they had lost their connection. Don't lose your connection. Stay connected. As a man, he, Christ, supplicated the throne of God till his humanity was charged with a heavenly current that connected humanity with divinity. Receiving life from God, he imparted life to men. You want to impart life? You want to change behavior? You better receive it before you try to impart it because you don't have any of it yourself. Four, lift your patience in the arms of your faith. Desire of Ages 8.24, it is our work to present the sick and suffering to Christ in the arms of our faith. It doesn't matter if they don't have faith as long as you do. We are to lift them in the arms of their faith. You know, I remember that story by uh, um, the, um, I'm skipping his name now, uh, George Mueller. He was on the boat, and he was fog-bound, and he had an appointment in New York. And he went to the cabin, uh, uh, to the captain, and he said, Captain, I've got to be in New York for an appointment in uh, two hours. And the captain said, what's wrong with you, Mueller? Can't you see that we're fog-bound? I can't get there. And Mueller said, let's pray. And so they got down on their knees, and Mueller said, Lord, if you want me to keep my appointment, which I believe you do, please lift this fog in 10 minutes. Thank you, amen. And the captain started to pray, and Mueller said, don't bother. You don't believe that he will, and I already believe that he has. <laughs> and the fog was lifted, and he kept his appointment. And, you know, when you're dealing with patients, it doesn't matter if they don't have faith as long as you do because they'll catch it from you. It's infectious. Five, never give up on your patients and never stop loving them. How many times did Jesus cast the demon out of Mary? Well, if he had to do it seven times, why are you upset if you have to do it twice? or if they come back again and again. Never give up on your patients. You know the ones that can't quit smoking and the ones that can't lose weight, you know why they can't? Because everybody else has given up on them. Don't you do it. The power of love was in all of Christ's healing. And only by partaking of that love through faith can we be instruments for his work. So here it is, five steps to changing patient behavior. Offer them something better. Vision hope for them. 
Stay connected to the source of your power. Lift them in the arms of your faith and never give up. And that's all predicated on you not merchandising the gospel. Never do that. Read those three chapters. Education, chapter 8. Ministry of Healing, chapter 9. Desire of Ages, chapter 86. And be changed. And now I've got the other half of my testimony. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. You can't change anybody's behavior. You can't even change your own. But Jesus can. And when you're weak, you're strong. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.